You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. In this message, we come to the third waterfall in the Cascade Argument against continuationism. We have seen that apostles of Christ do not continue in the church today. Building on that pivotal premise, we have argued that prophets no longer continue alive in the church today. And with these presuppositions firmly established, we are now prepared to consider the topic of tongue speaking. In certain respects, tongue speaking is especially identified as you know, with the continuationist and charismatic movement. There are a number of important charismatic claims concerning tongue speaking that uh, are made but will not be addressed in this lecture. In many continuationist churches, it is, of course, uh, the sign of the baptism of the Spirit. It's not the purpose of this message, and it isn't the purpose of uh, the book on which these messages is are based to address the whole issue of the baptism of the Spirit, although it's an important biblical issue. Nevertheless, I'm bringing forward considerations in this lecture that will profoundly influence one's view of this matter. For if there are no tongue speakers today, it certainly cannot be the sign of the baptism of the Spirit, however that baptism is understood. The major question taken up here today in this lecture is the one which advances the argument of of, uh, these lectures. Do tongue speakers continue in the church today? But this question cannot be separated from several others that have an impact on how it is answered. So in this lecture we will discuss four questions. Were tongues human languages? What were the rules about tongues speaking in church? Are there tongue speakers today? And lastly, how should we explain contemporary tongues speaking? Roman numeral one then, were tongues human languages? Yes. Let's go to the next point. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, that's the short answer to this important question. But how have I arrived at such a confident answer? And that takes a little longer to explain. I want to lay out my longer answer to this question in ten assertions about the New Testament references to speaking in tongues. It's important to notice, however, and I think it's often overlooked, that tongue speaking is only mentioned in two books in the New Testament, well, arguably a third, It's only mentioned in Acts chapters 2, 10, and 19, and 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, and there is a possible reference, depending upon your view of the text, in Mark 16, and whether you hold the longer ending of of Mark. This being premised, however, let us consider several things. First, in Acts 2, the first and pivotal reference in the Bible, tongues were clearly human languages. No continuationist should dispute the idea that the events of the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts 2 are pivotal for the understanding of the gift of the Spirit. In Acts 2, we have the first reference to the gift of tongues in the Bible. 
The phenomenon recorded in Acts 2 is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy of the giving of the Spirit to the church. This prophecy is found in Joel 2, 28 and 29, and came, according to the Apostle Peter, to manifest fruition in the gift of tongues. The outpouring of the Spirit recorded here is an epical or redemptive historical event of the same kind as the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ. Like these events, it lays the foundation or sets the stage for the entire Christian era. And yet, Acts 2, 1-13, this foundational passage, recording this foundational event, makes it very clear that the tongues spoken were human languages. I notice especially in Acts chapter 2, verses 5-11. to 11. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we cheer them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now, given the indisputable precedent of Acts 2, there's every reason to conclude that the other instances of tongue speaking First of all, in the book of Acts, Acts 10, 46, 19, 6, every reason to conclude that they were also human languages. Acts 2 sets a precedent for the meaning of tongues in Acts, and I think for the rest of the New Testament. This precedent, I submit, must control how we interpret the other mentions of the gift of tongues in Acts. It would take the strongest evidence to overturn this presumption. As a matter of fact, no evidence of any kind exists to show that the tongues of Acts 10.46 and 19.6 were anything else than foreign languages. And of course, if this is the meaning of tongues in the book of Acts, it would be uh, a, an assertion necessary of of incredibly strong support to say that the tongues of 1 Corinthians were different than the tongues of the book of Acts. Well, secondly, it is sometimes argued that the miracle of Acts 2 is not tongues speaking, but tongues hearing. But this is clearly wrong. This interpretation is put forward in order to distinguish the miracle of Acts 2 from that of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. The supposed proof for this interpretation is the emphasis in Acts 2, 8, and 11 on how all the different nationalities heard the apostles speaking in their own languages. The problem with this interpretation is, however, twofold. First, the gift is called tongues, not ears, in Acts 2, 4 and Acts 2, 6. Second, the passage explicitly says that they spoke in other tongues and not just that people heard them in other tongues. Third assertion. The word tongues was often used in the New Testament to refer to human languages. This is part of the context for use of the term tongues in Acts 
and 1 Corinthians. In Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, you have a couple of instances uh, where it's used to speak of uh, a foreign language, of different human languages. Wherever a physical tongue is not in view, this seems to be the default meaning of the word in the New Testament. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's the same word, means a foreign language. Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clearly means here foreign languages. Fourthly, though 1 Corinthians 13.1 refers to the tongues of men and of angels, it need not be understood that the gift to mean that the gift of tongues in Corinth was an angelic, heavenly, ecstatic prayer language. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of angels. From this text, continuous to continuationists argue that tongues is a heavenly language. But Paul's statement may be hyperbole, as if he had said, even if I should speak with the tongues of angels. Alternatively, Paul's language may echo a claim by some Corinthian, perhaps a claim by one of the so-called apostles who opposed Paul, and not be designed to reveal the apostles' doctrine. Thus Paul would be saying, suppose that I myself spoke with the tongues of angels as you claim to do. And finally, we should remember that angels do not have bodies, tongues, or therefore spoken languages. And so the language of Paul, if I speak, if I speak with the tongues of angels, it cannot be brought forward as firm proof for heavenly prayer languages of angels. Fifthly, when 1 Corinthians 14.2 is thought to refer to a heavenly language, it is misinterpreted. 1 Corinthians 14.2 says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But this only means that no one understands if there is no interpretation. Of course, God understands because he understands every human language. But it does, this passage does not teach that there are heavenly languages that no one could possibly understand. In this context, Paul is asserting the necessity of interpretation. And of course, such interpretation assumes that the language involved is a foreign language which can be so interpreted. Notice the emphasis on the need for interpretation at the end of verse 5. One who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. God understands not because it is a heavenly language, but because God knows all human languages. Verse 13, remember, instructs the Corinthians Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Well, that brings me to our next assertion. 
Paul's call for interpretation in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, and in verses 26 to 28, seems to assume that the tongues here were human languages. Verse 13, therefore let one who speaks in the tongue pray that he may interpret. Verses 26 to 28, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret, but if there is no interpreter, He must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. That the tongues were human languages is assumed by the call for interpretation. I do not deny, of course, that God could hypothetically give the ability to interpret even a heavenly or ecstatic language or an angelic language. The statement more naturally, however, refers to the interpretation of a human language unknown to those present. But... Our next assertion, Paul's citation of Isaiah 28.11 in 1 Corinthians 14.21 indicates the tongues mentioned here are human languages. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord." The tongues of Isaiah 28.11 are the tongues of an invading foreign army, and they are therefore foreign languages. It's difficult to see how this citation is pertinent to Paul's argument or relevant to his subject unless the tongues spoken in Corinth were human languages. And then our next point, Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 14.21 is that the gift of tongues was a sign of judgment on the Jews. Isaiah 28.11 refers to the tongue or language of a foreign army. It is heard by the Jews because that army has occupied the land of Israel as a foreign invasion force. This situation was a result of the judgment of God on the Jews. It is difficult to see how hearing the gift of someone speaking in the tongues of angels could be considered a judgment. This would appear to be more of a blessing, like Paul's being caught up to the third heaven and hearing inexpressible things, than a curse. But our next assertion, the meaning of the gift of tongues in the Bible, the meaning of the gift of tongues in the Bible includes the ideal that, the idea, pardon me, that it is a reversal of Babel. A reversal of Babel. Tongues given in the context of the New Covenant and the Great Commission uh, mark the reversal of Babel and the universality of the New Covenant. The curse of Babel divided the nations by imposing different languages on them. Genesis 11 verses 1 to 9. When on the day of Pentecost, the word of God was proclaimed in many tongues, this was a sign that the curse of Babel was now to be reversed. Many nations and peoples 
were to be reconciled in the one Christ and his work of redemption, Ephesians 2, 12 to 19. Thus, what was a judgment on the Jews was at the same time a blessing on the Gentiles. Sinclair Ferguson asserts, For Paul, tongues served partly as the sign of God's judgment on his covenant people. What marks the reversal of Babel and indicates the universality of the new covenant also signals judgment on the covenant people for the rejection of the Christ. Babylon reversed is in another sense Jerusalem judged. And then he quotes the passage that you should be thinking of by now. Their loss means riches for the Gentiles. And this is Paul's teaching, of course, in Romans 11, verse 12. The significance of the tongue speaking of the new covenant in the biblical story is destroyed if you make it into ecstatic angelic languages. Only the gift of speaking foreign languages reverses Babel and brings reconciliation to the nations. But the last thing I want to say about the question, were these foreign languages, human languages, is this. Tongues are a spiritual gift given for the edification of the body. The purpose of the spiritual gifts, all of them, does not terminate on the welfare of the one to whom they are given. One major principle with regard to the gifts of the Spirit in general, and reiterated several times in the New Testament, is that gifts are given to individuals for the sake of the body of Christ. That's right. Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. 1 Peter 4, 10. And so, continuationist, in contrast, sometimes present tongues as a private prayer language given to the individual for his own private edification. But this notion runs contrary to everything we know about spiritual gifts in the New Testament. In whatever way 1 Corinthians 14, 2, 4, 4, 17, and 28 are to be properly understood, they cannot be intended to teach that tongue speaking is mainly or exclusively a private prayer language. Tongue speaking must rather be primarily for the edification of the church as a whole, and this is in fact the point Paul is making. To be of edification in the assembly of the church, he is saying, they must be interpreted, and therefore must be foreign languages. So our conclusion must be this to our first question. If tongues were foreign languages that could be interpreted, then many, if not most, claims to the gift to of tongues today are invalidated. They are not, and do not even claim to be, in many cases, foreign languages. Now, that brings us to our second question. What were the rules about tongue speaking in the church? Well, thankfully, they're all consolidated, I think, uh, the main ones at least, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you're not there, look at that passage, please. 1 Corinthians 14. Now, 1 Corinthians 14, of course, lies in the great section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the, uh, to the Corinthians, that deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. You have uh, the spiritual gifts uh, described in, in chapter 12. You have the spiritual gifts in, in contrast in conjunction with love, 
uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. The theme of 1 Corinthians 14 is the use and exercise of spiritual gifts in the assemblies of the church. That's what the passage is about. And Paul lays out two great principles that ought to govern the use of all spiritual gifts in the church. And the one is in verses 1 to 26, it's maximum edification. And the other is in verses 27 to 40, and it's the principle of doing all things decently and in order. And it's in terms of these two great principles that he states the rules and laws about uh, the use of tongues and prophecy and the place of women in the local church and its assemblies. Now, in the process of doing these, these things then, one of the major emphases of 1 Corinthians is therefore to give rules for the use of the gifts of tongues in the meetings of the church. The rules for speaking in tongues are then these. Very clear. Only two or three tongue speakers could speak in any given meeting of the church. Verse 27. And they could not speak at the same time in any given meeting of the church so that order might be preserved. They had to speak in order. That's the first rule. So only two or three and not at the same time. There is to be no babble in the church. But then, if tongues, second rule, were to be spoken in the church, they had to be interpreted. If no one interpreted, the tongue uh, tongue speaker had to keep silent, 1 Corinthians 14, 28. And then thirdly, and I think pretty devastatingly for the charismatic movement, no woman was allowed to speak in tongues in the meeting of the church. This is the major reason, or at least one of the major reasons, for the prohibition of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. When Paul says it's not permitted to a woman to speak, whatever else is included in that, he must be talking about the major way he's used the word speak for about 20 times in the book of, in, the, in 1 Corinthians 14. And he has used this word in 1 Corinthians 14 uh, between 18 or 19 times to refer to speaking in tongues. It's the same word. And so when he forbids a woman to speak in church, he means that he's forbidding her to speak in tongues. Now, I think it's also clear, since he uses the word speak and keep silent with regard to prophecy, he's also saying that that a woman prophet may not speak in church as well. But the point I'm making here is that no woman was allowed to speak in tongues in the meeting of the church. And this is the major reason for the prohibition of 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. It is obvious from these rules, it's obvious as as we consider the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that few or perhaps none of these rules are observed in most of the churches where tongue speaking is practiced. This is certainly a call for reformation of such meetings. The regular and almost systematic violation of these biblical rules raises, however, a profound suspicion that the tongues phenomenon today is not scripturally based when it so broadly and consistently ignores everything the Apostle Paul taught about how they should be regulated in church. When the clear rules of scripture are so flagrantly disobeyed, it's right to wonder if scripture has very much or anything to do with this practice at all. But that brings us to our third question. Our tongues for today. Let me be forthright. The gift of tongues does not exist in the church today. The argument for this conclusion is as follows. 
tongue speaking was a form of prophecy. And therefore, when accompanied by the gift of interpretation, functionally equivalent to prophecy, and since, as we have seen, there are no living prophets in the church today, there can be no tongue speakers either. You see the argument. No prophecy, tongue speaking a form of prophecy, and there no, therefore no tongue speaking. Now, of course, the key, the pivot, the foundation of that argument is that tongue speaking was a form of prophecy. Why do I assert that? How do I know this? Well, there are several arguments. First, the pivotal example of tongue speaking in Acts 2 is identified as prophecy. When Peter comes to explain the apostles standing there speaking in foreign languages, he goes to a passage in the Old Testament that says nothing about tongue speaking, but says everything about prophecy and explains the tongue speaking going on on the day of Pentecost as an exhibition of prophecy. Acts 2, 14 down through verse 18. Men of Judea, Peter says, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken, now notice, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth on my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Not speak in tongues, prophesy. And yet Peter regards this prophecy as appropriate and germane to what's going on. Because Peter understood that tongue speaking was a form of prophecy. Next uh, reason I believe that tongue speaking is a form of prophecy is this. 1 Corinthians 14.5 Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongue, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now, our understanding of this verse must begin with an appreciation, the appreciation which I tried to vindicate in the last hour, of the exalted understanding of prophecy in the Bible. Paul here tells the Corinthians that prophecy is the thing they should aspire to do. Prophecy is greater than tongue speaking. And prophecy is, of course, the ability to act as the mouth of God to his church. What an exalted view of prophecy the Bible has. And Paul, therefore, of course, says that prophecy is exalted above tongue speaking. But then he says, unless one interprets. And the plain and precise implication of what he says is, that if tongue speaking is interpreted, it is equivalent to prophecy. That exalted function of acting as the mouth of God. Though tongue speaking is clearly distinct from prophecy, in that it involves the additional ability to speak in a language one has not learned, it is also substantially equivalent to prophecy, 
in communicating the direct revelation that is given through prophecy. But a third reason why I believe that tongue speaking is a form of prophecy. In both prophecy and tongues, the speaker is uttering mysteries. Compare 1 Corinthians 13.2 with 1 Corinthians 14.2. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 14.2 remarks, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks, there's the word again, mysteries. Both in prophecy and tongues, a mystery is spoken. We know, however, that a mystery is the special content of prophecy. When Paul gives his prophecy in 1 Corinthians 15:51, he says that he is telling them a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Prophecy and mystery are closely related in Romans 11:25, Romans 16:25 and 26, Ephesians 3:3, 3, 3, and throughout the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was, of course, a prophecy, Revelation 1:3, and th- thus throughout it contains mysteries, Revelation 1:20, But there is a fourth reason why I believe that tongue speaking is a form of prophecy. Tongues and prophecy are, and your own knowledge of the New Testament will inform you of this, tongues and prophecy are closely associated with considerable frequency in the New Testament. Acts 2, tongues is described as prophecy. Acts 19.6 lumps tongues and prophecy together. 1 Corinthians 13.1 and 2 lumps tongues and prophecy together. And everywhere in 1 Corinthians 14, prophecy and tongues are spoken of together. This intimate association is easily explained if tongue speaking was a distinctive form of prophecy. So for all these reasons, tongues is to be identified as a form of prophecy. Therefore, if prophecy has ceased, then so also has tongues. The cascade argument then is vindicated. No apostles, therefore no prophets, and if no prophets... Therefore, no tongue speakers. It may be for this reason, as a matter of fact, that in the later books of the Apostle Paul, like the pastoral epistles, there is no regulation or even mention of tongue speaking. It was, like prophecy, passing away. At any rate, the substantial equivalency of tongue speaking and prophesying cannot be missed in an unprejudiced examination of the New Testament. But fourthly, and our fourth and last question, it's this. Many, pardon me, how should we explain, then, contemporary tongue speaking? Now, here's where we face a dilemma as cessationists. And a dilemma I, th- a dilemma I think that we have to think seriously about. Many apparently sincere Christians engage in what they think is tongue speaking, right? If the gift really has ceased in the church, how do we explain their experience? 
Now that's a serious question. If we reject the continuation of tongue speakers in the church, must we conclude as our only alternative that all such professing Christians under the power of the devil are even demon-possessed? Is the alternative that we must either say that tongues are divine or that they are demonic? Are we, are we to be skewered on the horns of that dilemma? Well, I don't think that that skewering on that dilemma is necessary. It would be a very, very serious charge indeed to make to say that every Christian, and there are genuine Christians, I think, that have said this, who claims to have spoken in tongues were deceived and demon-possessed. Thankfully, I don't think this is the choice that follows from the cessationist position. And it's important to remember the following things when the origin of tongues practiced today is considered. I have four things to say, and then you'll be happy to know that I'm done. We do not, as Christians, first of all, build doctrine on experience. This is the first thing we must say, but on the Bible. And thus, the experience and convictions of ever so many tongue speakers cannot be, <coughs> and is not, normative for doctrine today. Let God be true, as the Apostle Paul said, and every man a liar. But yet this question may be asked. If professed tongue speaking today is not a divine gift, where does it come from? Some of it may indeed be demonic. Demons are certainly capable of coming to church and making people speak in tongues. (laughs) enabling them to do things they could not otherwise do. Mark 5, verses 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. But in the third place I want to say, most modern tongue speaking may be, may be a kind of natural phenomenon that arises from religious excitement or other kinds of excitement. Uh, Most may be a kind of natural phenomenon that does not need to be explained as either essentially or originally divine or demonic. This phenomenon may be called free vocalization and has been observed in completely non-Christian context. As a natural phenomenon, it need not be condemned as necessarily demonic. But lastly, God may sometimes... Now, here's, here's something you're going to think about for a while, but I think that what I'm about to say is true. God may sometimes do the miracle of enabling a Christian to speak in a foreign language that he has never learned, but this need not be equated with the gift of tongue speaking. Now you have to think about that, don't you? God may enable someone to speak in a language he's never learned, but this may not, need, need not be equated with the gift of tongue speaking. Now what do I mean? Well, <clears throat> my position is not If you've read my book, you know it's not, that there are no miracles today. My position, and someone asked about this after last lecture, about miracle workers, my position is that there are no miracle workers, but it's not my position that there are no miracles. You see, there's a difference between there being miracles and miracle workers. Miracle workers are doing those miracles, if they're doing them biblically at all, to confirm the message they speak, right? That's, what, that's why apostles and prophets and even tongue speakers did miracles. To confirm the 
the divine message uh, that they were bringing to the sons of men. But that is not to say that amazing, astonishing, providentially really unusual things don't happen in the world today, or that God has locked himself out of the world. God can do one-time miracles in all sorts of ways without uh, meaning that there are apostles, prophets, tongue speakers, or miracle workers in the world today. And so, if someone tells me, well, I knew this missionary, and he, uh, he was given the ability on this one occasion to speak in a language he never learned, I will say, that's wonderful, praise God for that, that doesn't mean he was a tongue speaker. Because whatever he said, whatever he said was not necessarily prophecy, was it? So, I have already stated my intention, uh, <clears throat> therefore, to distinguish between miracle workers and miracles, uh, and uh, I think, however, that that distinction has an application here. I think it's a possibility that a cessationist might allow that on rare occasions God might give someone the abilities to speak a foreign language they've not learned in the normal way. Such a miracle would have to be dis- clearly distinguished from biblical tongue speaking, uh, but it would be possible on the grounds that I occupy on this question. Such a miracle would not involve prophetic status for what was spoken or a number of the other distinctives of the biblical gift of tongue speaking. The advantage of affirming such a carefully qualified miracle as this would be the possible of a possibility of explaining certain instances of supposed tongue speaking as miraculous without affirming that tongue speakers are given to the church today. So this is the cascade argument. No apostles, clearly taught in the New Testament. Because no apostles, no prophets. Because no prophets, no tongue speakers. Because the miracle workers of the Bible were doing miracles, were miracle workers in order to attest a divine message, and therefore were apostles, prophets, or tongue speakers, therefore no miracle workers. Well, tomorrow I'll come back to tell you not only that, uh, to remind you that there are no apostles, prophets, tongue speakers, or miracles, but then to tell you why we don't need them. But that's for tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.